obesity drives over 200 chronic diseases. We have to stop treating the complications of obesity and actually treat the disease of obesity to prevent the complications. Welcome to another episode of the HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Eamon Kyo. Today, we are continuing a conversation I had a number of weeks ago about obesity. On this episode, we will be talking more about this chronic illness, the various treatments available for people living with obesity, and where we go from here. Joining me to discuss all this and more is Professor Donal O'Shea, HSE Clinical Lead for Obesity. You're very welcome, Donal. Thank you very much. Looking forward to the chat. So, Donald, as I mentioned there, I had the pleasure to talk with Dr. Jean O'Connell and Susie Burney in episode 29 about the stigma that people living with obesity experience. And I must say it was truly shocking to hear some of the stories. Yeah, I mean, I thought that uh, illustrated the scale of the problem individuals with obesity face and that we still have a long way to go. I didn't fully understand what people living with obesity experience until about six, seven years ago. We said, if we're going to give talks on obesity, we need to have the lived experience. Mm. And we traveled, myself, Kathy Breen and a patient to Prague. And I walked through Dublin Airport with that patient, highly qualified artistic individual living with severe and complex obesity. And, you know, when you're in an airport, you have to go through security and you're passing up and down in line. And the looks and the comments she got and the comments I got for being with her, the photographs that would have been taken of her. People actually took photographs. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Extraordinary. You know, I'd heard about it from patients, but I hadn't actually walked their walk. So we have a long way to go. Having conversations like that openly is important because it gives people the opportunity to just reflect on their own thinking and behavior. And we need to do that. It's having that appreciation about what someone is going through internally, what Susie described, actually caring what someone else's thinks. But it's it's a reflection of maybe how you're feeling. So if your self-esteem is low, so you have that, I suppose, psychological effect. You're not just dealing with the health aspect, but you have that psychological battle as well. Absolutely. And you you can't we now don't separate mental and physical health really as, as much as we can anymore because they're so intertwined. But, you know, Susie describing that she was down from 25 stone at one point to 16, having gone down to 11 after surgery initially, but back up at 16 stone, people are still judging her, saying you need to lose a bit of weight. And she's had kind of an almost heroic journey to that 16 stone, but she's still being judged and within the medical profession. Yeah. And there just seems to be a big misconception as to what obesity is and the lack of understanding about how complex a disease it is. Yeah, we're getting there. And at the recent European Obesity Congress, the the final speaker on the final day to a packed hall who were all interested in obesity, he said, you guys need now to go out there and recognize and realize that obesity is a complex disease driven by genes, driven by the environment. And he said, I don't want you just to say it. From now on, you need to mean it and feel it because most of you, even in this room, still think, "Ah, well, actually, if they could just eat less and move more, they'd be okay." And we have to move everybody within the medical community beyond that default, which is still, I would say, 90 percent of individuals default. 
it's one of the biggest public health challenges really in Ireland, isn't it? I, I mean, I read that the obesity program before. I mean, that's stark, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it's public health challenge number one. Obesity drives over 200 chronic diseases and the link in evidence terms is either strong or very strong for the majority of those 220 conditions. So we have to stop treating the complications of obesity and actually treat the disease of obesity to prevent the complications. And ultimately, we want to prevent the disease of obesity. Yeah, and we'll come back to that prevention yeah. piece. But another thing actually that struck me around that, uh, what healthcare professionals can do, even just that language and being aware of when they're talking to somebody just to change their tone or how they ask the question. And it, it just struck me at a time when the health service in terms of budget and there's always budget pressures. And this is something that healthcare professionals can do that doesn't cost any money. And it would make a huge difference in terms of patient experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I find when patients living with obesity encounter somebody who understands the disease of obesity, who explains to the individual that it's not their fault, that it is complicated and that there's a reason that we need obesity treatment services. You can't do it on your own. When people encounter that and recognize it to be their lived experience, actually, that you can't do it on your own, it's a weight off their shoulders and their the psychological burden eases. And that's often the first step towards being able to allow yourself have the treatment, the support that you need mm. to manage your disease. And you can do that in a, a simple few words. You know, is it OK if we talk about your weight today? That ask permission that was spoken about and never assume, you know, that one of the five A's that you, you must never use, mm. never assume. And I will often explain to patients that blood donation as an analogy for how we protect against weight. So you can give blood if you're a blood donor because you know that eight weeks later, your blood count will be back up to exactly where it was and you can give blood again. And you haven't spent one minute in that eight weeks thinking about your blood count. But your body has lost a valuable resource and it works around building that up again to the level it was once at. You give away energy, you give away weight and your body will do exactly the same thing. And all the studies that have been done over the years of diets, diets and medication show that yo-yo pattern you lose a lot of weight, it goes back on and some. You go on medication and even the current medication we have, you stop that medication and the weight, the body brings your weight back up to where it was when you started that treatment. So you are the clinical lead for the obesity program. When did you first get involved in the program? Well, I suppose when I came back to Ireland, I'd worked in a unit in London and developed an interest in obesity. Mm. We had no policy or approach to it at that time. So I started to say, well, look, we need an obesity policy. We need an obesity plan. It's emerging as a major public health crisis. Yeah. So there was a task force that reported back in 2005 and nothing really happened out of that. It was a, a document on a shelf. And then about 10 years later, there was another go, if you like, at a policy level. And there was an obesity policy and action plan. And out of that, there was a commitment to establishing a program. And they advertised for a, a national lead. I was absolutely committed to securing that role. Right. Desperate to get it. Yeah. Delighted when I did. Then out of that 
became, there was in that obesity policy and action plan, a commitment to establishing and developing a model of care. Mm. And you need those systems in place within the health system to deliver meaningful change. Right. We'll talk about the model of care in a second, but do you feel, I mean, what you described there about a report going on a shelf and sadly that happens a lot, but do you think things have moved on since then? Uh, well, they've definitely moved on. And I think that was a big learn for me that, you know, if you miss a policy opportunity, there's a wave of mm. enthusiasm and it's not followed through on, you lose a decade. Right. And, and, wow. and, really, and, and yeah. so when the next opportunity came along, there was more people interested in the space. And we said, look, we cannot let this one fail or we're going to lose another decade. And the obesity policy and action plan was from, I think, 2015 to 2025. Mm. There is already the drafts being made of the obesity policy and action plan 2025 to 2035. So we have, if you like, managed to generate momentum and now a further commitment to that momentum rolling over. Things have moved on a lot from that 2005 space. And I would say the, if you like, turning point was the Irish Coalition of People Living with Obesity finding their voice and coming to meet the policymakers within the HSE and the Department of Health with the healthcare professionals. The ICPO, to paraphrase, I suppose what they would say, they have an equal voice at the table. Yeah. You know, they're not just an afterthought, really. You really have taken, I suppose, in the inner circle. Yeah. And I think that whole drive that's there, kind of public patient partnership, mm, uh, mm. in some areas it's tick box. Right. And that doesn't work. The ICPO have been very clear. They're not a box to be ticked. They've made that very clear on a number of occasions and you would take them for granted at your peril. And what are you most encouraged by these days in terms of what you see? The emergence and acceptance of obesity as a disease in its own right. I think that's been very important. We're still at the early stages of it. Yeah. I think having been involved in this space for 30 years, to see that we're at the point where we're about to have availability of meaningful, safe, effective treatments for the disease of obesity. And that's important for two reasons. First of all, when you can treat a condition, you immediately start destigmatizing it because people say, well, if there's a treatment, it must be a disease. They can make that connection more easily prior to having treatments other than, you know, the kind of barbaric jaw wiring stuff of the 60s and 70s. Frightening stuff, really. Yeah. And scary. The, yeah. the history of obesity treatment is littered with scary, horrible stories. And we're only just coming into, I'll describe it as an age of reason. You know, epilepsy used to be demonic possession and exorcisms used to be carried out. And then you get effective treatments and you realize it's a brain disorder. Stomach ulcers. Uh, used to be stress and alcohol and smoking. And then they found out there was a little bug called Helicobacter and six weeks of antibiotics cleared your ulcers. And that destigmatized, well, he can't handle stress or she can't handle. So we're at that point now with obesity where because we are going to over the next 10 to 15 years have very effective treatments beyond the surgery, which is an extremely good treatment, there will be more treatment, more acceptance of obesity as a disease. And, you know, in that setting, you could have a very significant impact on all the diseases 
that are overcrowding our hospital trolleys. Wow, that's great. And do you want to talk a little bit about those treatments? So the newer treatments that we're beginning to use now for obesity are based around the hormones in the gut that you release yourself after a meal. After a meal, your gut releases probably 10 or 15 different hormones to help you digest, control your sugar, make you feel a little bit full. And the pharmaceutical industry have been working over the last 30 years to turn these from hormones that have a 30 second life to drugs that can be given weekly at the moment by injection, but tablet forms have been developed. And because these treatments are based on hormones, they're not drug drugs. Okay. You know, they're analogs of substances that your own body makes. So in general, they tend to have better safety profiles than, say, some of the chemotherapeutic drugs that give you a whole raft of side effects. Mm. People have heard of Ozempic and all the fuss about Ozempic and uh, lack of availability. And I think that lack of availability was inevitable. Mm. after its initial release, to be honest. And I, I think by, I'd say, March or April, those shortages should be overcome. That's the trajectory. And I think people will then have access to a range of drugs that will give up to 25% weight loss with the ones that are currently being developed. That's significant, isn't it? Yeah. It's unthinkable. Yeah. I mean, the obesity field felt that this point was a about the middle of the 2030s. We didn't think we'd be sitting in 2023, 4, 5 going, actually, we have access to them now. And honestly, the obesity field hasn't fully anticipated the impact this will have, even, you know, within our model of care, within availability and need for surgery, mm. because they've come that much, if you like, quicker than we anticipated. Right. And will they be readily available or... We're talking about complex obesity here as well, aren't we? Yeah, no. So, I mean, yeah. look, I'm, and again, the, the point's been made. Uh, there are people who have overweight and obesity who have no health problems from it. Yeah. What you need to treat is obesity that is causing health problems. Mm. And that's where these drugs will be used. There will be weight and or BMI cutoffs. And you will need to have complicated obesity to benefit from treatment. Mm. Over time, what happens with any treatable condition is that the cost of the treatment comes down as the drugs come off patent. So the once daily GLP treatment comes off patent this 12 months. Right. So generics will emerge and prices will fall. At the moment, there will be weight cutoffs and BMI cutoffs. Will those fall? You know, will they be reduced over time? The big concern with the availability of treatment is that it might further drive socioeconomic separation in terms of people who can afford it will be able to get it. And people who can't afford it, who don't qualify for it under the kind of reimbursement criteria, won't get it. And as a programme, we will be fighting very hard to make sure that availability of pharmacotherapy is as fair as it can be. Yeah, but it's an exciting development overall, isn't it? It's incredible. And yeah. I never, I really thought I would be retired before we had meaningful pharmacotherapy. So I'm incredibly excited that that's not the case and that I will be seeing how it's used and how it changes the field. Yeah. And just to talk about the model of care, maybe just you mentioned it a few times that was developed or launched in 2021. 
that sets out what you say end-to-end care for prevention and treatment of overweight and obesity in children, young people and adults. This was a big milestone for the program as well, wasn't it? It was a huge milestone and we were writing it just around the time that this launch of care chronic disease framework was announced and we were able to, if you like, draft our model entirely in line with that Sloan to Care outline. Yeah. So it immediately fitted into a triangle mm. and everything needs to be a triangle now within the HSE if it's to be funded, it would appear. <laughs> uh, so we have a triangle with, you know, the base pyramid is what goes on out in the mm. community. And then you work your way up through primary care into multidisciplinary teams that are based in the community. And at the top of the pyramid, then you have bariatric surgery within the hospital setting. Yeah. And then either side of that triangle, we have two pillars. And the pillar to the right is monitoring and evaluation because you have to track, are you seeing the right number of people? Are you doing the right number of surgeries? How are we doing with obesity at a population level? And then the pillar to the left is the prevention piece. And that's absolutely critical. You've got to make sure that if you treat people who have a disease, that they go back out into an environment that will help to keep them healthier. If you go out back into an environment that is undiluted, high fat, high salt, high sugar and sedentary, then it's going to be very difficult to stay healthy. If you can manage to change that environment in the prevention space, you would hope to get less people developing overweight or obesity. So prevention is critical. But for people who have the disease of obesity, you have to treat the disease because prevention is different from treatment. And at the moment, often when I'm talking to funders, we'll use the analogy about malignant melanoma, which is the skin cancer you get from sun exposure. And you get it because you have a genetic predisposition and you get too much energy from the sun for those genes. You are not told sunscreen and a hat is your treatment. Your treatment is your treatment. There are hundreds of people who lie on sunbeds and get lots of sun in the garden, put olive oil on when they go out the garden and don't get melanoma. You develop obesity because you get too much energy from the environment for your genes. There's lots of people eating 3000 kilocalories a day who do not have overweight or obesity. And we will admit some people to our um, inpatient program and they will consume 1100 kilocalories for six weeks, do physical activity and they will lose no weight. So it's really complicated. The treatment is different from the prevention. Uh, and you've got to have active and aggressive preventive measures. And when you say active preventive measures, I know you talked before about a sugar tax and also the calorie posting. It's that education piece, isn't it, in the public, just so that people know and are aware, actually, if I eat too much in a day or I don't exercise, it's basically how much am I building up or eating versus how much exercise am I doing? It is that balance in developing the disease. And then when you have the disease, you must treat it. Yeah. So the sugar tax has been amazing. Yeah. What's coming back on that now, industries say it's failed mm. because they would. But in fact, it's resulted in massive reformulation and a vast range of zero calorie drinks on the shelves. And the sugar content of most of the high sugar beverages has fallen. So people are drinking more of the soft drinks in inverted commas, but consuming much less sugar. 
Right. And that's a real win in terms of a, a policy measure. And policy yeah. is a blunt instrument. The calorie posting on menu boards, again, works. Industry will tell you it doesn't. But portion size reduces. So if your muffin last week had 556 calories in it, a week after calorie posting comes in, that calorie content is down to 498 because people are more likely to buy it. So it'll just come down that little bit. And if you realize that a cappuccino and a muffin is 750 calories, you might go, well, I'll have an Americano and I'll half the muffin with the person I'm having a coffee with. And people will make. Yeah, and it's that informed choice, isn't it? And and there's the evidence there that it influences about 50 percent of people. That 50% of people uh, look much, the calories. Yeah. And, and that's huge reach. Absolutely. Yeah. And that on average, they reduce their calorie content of that meal by about 70 calories, 70 kilocalories. That at a population level is huge. Again, industry have lobbied really successfully to stop the government from legislating for it. Because the government have committed three or four times to legislate for calorie posting. But we still haven't seen the legislation and there's currently no plan to legislate. I'm sure you'll be following that up. We'll keep on that, you know, and then, you know, there's the school piece. Education in schools is very important, but schools are asked to do so much Mm. that that's not the whole answer. Breastfeeding and that whole push to encourage more breastfeeding. And within Slauncher Care, there's a Healthy Communities Initiative, which is, again, trying to make society in, I think it's 19 different areas, have an environment where the healthier choice is the easier choice, not the more difficult choice. I mean, I have to say, as a parent of small children, even for myself, that whole mirroring, first of all, be conscious of what I do. But it is a constant battle every time you go into a supermarket or a petrol station and you're literally running the gauntlet with them to get out without a treat. Yeah, uh, it's nearly impossible. You know, the Christmas selection boxes were stacked high beside the tills in August before back to school. I mean, it used to be Halloween and then they'd appear. Now you'll hit the start of January and the Easter eggs are in there. That seasonality in terms of advertising has gone. What a lot of people don't realize is that even where the products are displayed in the garages or in the shops, they're targeting their audience very particularly. So it's no mistake that they're two foot higher. Absolutely. So the eye line is the yeah. byline. Yeah. And if you're two, then the products that are at your eye level are in terms of their wrapping color and appeal are targeted at a two year old's kind of visual orientation. And the content of the product has a bliss point for your two year old's palate because of the bliss point for a two year old's palate is different from the bliss point for a seven year old. And that's the products that are in that middle rung for the seven year old target in, in exactly the same way. It's phenomenally cynical. Mm. And what can we do about that, I suppose, as the HSE? In terms of policy? Yeah, I mean, some countries have looked at plain packaging. Yeah. So get rid of that. And people say, ah, sure, you're taking the fun out of it. And industry are very good at flooding the narrative Mm. around nanny state. So I think things like plain packaging, things like access. So right beside the till, because literally in the the motorway stops, you walk down through a tunnel of high fat, high salt, high sugar foods specifically targeted. How does a three-year-old do that and not come away with a packet of something? Yeah. Coca-Cola and Cadbury's with their names on bottle. So that's their most successful campaign ever. The names on bottle, names on bar. 
and you go to their corporate website and it says Coca-Cola no longer promote in any way, shape or form to under 12s. And they have the top 50 baby names from the last five years on their bars and their bottles. It's 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 cynical advertising, really, isn't it? Yeah. And it's also a cynical corporate position statement. You know, it's offensive. I was just going to ask you just a little bit more about the role of schools. I know we said they have a lot on their plate, but it really does start with that informed choice. I suppose just educating our children about the amount of sugar and things, how it affects the body. Yeah, I think the role of schools, I think our education curriculum is evolving to include the right kind of material around uh, healthier choices for a healthier life. The SPHE curriculum is running through the junior and senior cycle now, and that includes education around cooking. Probably not enough practical skill development in that space, I would think, yet. And I think the transition year is a particular opportunity that we should be focused on in in this country because we're very lucky in Ireland to have a transition year. Yeah. And about 60 percent of students and 60 percent of schools have a transition year. So that's a real opportunity, I think, to upskill on the practical side around cooking, around the role of activity. I think if you could peer mentor Mm. within that, I think TY students would have the opportunity to buddy with kids a couple of years behind them in school to promote those values because you and I having a conversation, there's not many 13 year olds that are going to be excited by this. Yeah. But if they have a 17 year old or a 16 year old a couple of years ahead of them who's saying, do you know what, you know, maybe cutting out the sugar sweetened drink is a, be a good thing. Or why don't you come out and, you know, we'll do a lunchtime walk because that's the age group they completely model off. And if you could make that a positive experience in the health setting, that would be amazing. Yeah. And we saw that actually during that was one of the things, I suppose, in COVID, we were all cooking more and getting a bit active. And I know we were in lockdown, but at the same time, I suppose, did you see some of those habits developing more as we practically saw in our patient cohort, a 50 50 split where 50 percent were exactly what you said, found they had more time, were able to cook more, got out more. Yeah. And then the other 50 percent found it all more difficult and more challenging. Because even when you think back on it now, and I know there's still COVID around, but they were difficult times for lots of people. And Ireland did COVID very well in comparison with other countries. And it was still a challenging time. Yeah. Donald, I read recently the World Health Organization has called out the Irish model of care as an exemplar for other countries to follow, that's a really positive endorsement. Yeah, no, we're delighted about that. And and we're really surprised because you just don't expect that to happen, really. Yeah. And how did that happen? Well, I was invited to a WHO meeting uh, in January of 2023. And the invitation contained a bit of background. And the background about obesity looked very familiar to me. And it looked like a lot of it was from our model of care. And I contacted Karen Gaynor, who pulled the whole model together and, and said, you know, have the WHO been looking at our model? And she wasn't aware that they had been, but 
what they announced at that meeting was they had looked at all the model to care for obesity that were out there and that the Irish one was the most comprehensive and they felt other countries that didn't have a model should look at it and adapting it. And one of the things they particularly liked about it is that it takes the prevention piece as well as the treatment piece and says both are important, both are different, but you must do both, which speaks to the earlier question. And they now want Ireland to be a demonstration country for other countries to visit with WHO delegations to look at the process of what we're trying to do. And my hope now is that we can use this because our model is currently 50% funded and we know what's happening with budgets at the moment. But I'm hoping that the affirmation from the WHO will encourage full funding of our model of care because if we don't get full funding, then the model will struggle. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, yeah. You, you Are you back to that 10 year cycle you spoke about or is it that dramatic? Uh, no, I, it, it, I, no, we're in a much better space. Yeah. So we're not, this is not back to kind of ground zero. Right, but uh, it does put you back. If we're not fully funded, we will uh, struggle and people living with obesity will struggle to get access to the care that they really desperately need. Yeah, yeah. Well, the best to look for that one. Thank you. We're nearing the end of the podcast, but can I ask where people can go for more information about obesity services? Well, I think if an individual is concerned about obesity themselves, then they should go to their GP as a first protocol. Okay. Uh, there's very good information about obesity on the HSE website, and there's a link to the guidelines that, again, Jean and Susie mentioned that have a significant patient component to each chapter. Right. And then finally, I think the Irish Coalition of People Living with Obesity have been the tipping point mm. in the momentum that has brought the obesity program and activity in this space to where we are today, which is a very good place. Right. I might just give that address. That's www.icpobesity.org. This has been really interesting. Thanks, Donald. But before we finish up, have you any final thoughts for our listeners? I'm particularly going to ask you about where you see the program in five and even that 10 year cycle that we talked about. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed the chat. Thank you. And it's fantastic to see obesity getting this kind of airtime and discussion. You know, this was not happening yeah. five or 10 years ago. So it's it's very positive. I feel like I could talk to you for hours on this, by the way. <laughs> but, but where would I like to see the program in five to 10 years time? Well, number one, fully funded. Number two, delivering the 1,200 bariatric surgeries at least per annum that this country needs. Yeah. Uh, number three, with good access to treatment for people with severe and complex obesity who do not need surgery. The same applies exactly to the childhood model that is, again, about 50% funded, and we need to get that fully operationalized. And then in the prevention space, I would like to see a different environment. I mean, you know, if you could think about the, you know, we referred earlier to that petrol station, mm. motor stop environment, what's on display near the tills. If you could see some responsibility from industry in how they promote and target kids, that would be very positive. Yeah, sounds like a case of a lot done and a lot more to do. Yep. Donald, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really interesting. I'd like to thank Professor Donald O'Shea for joining me. 
And to all our listeners, please continue to share this episode with a friend, colleague or family member. We really appreciate your support. This has been HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing. Thank you for listening. Thank you.